welcome all of you here today. And I know uh, it's graduation weekend around here, so it's a pretty busy weekend. Some of you brought your family here. Some of your family kept you at home. And so you're watching online. We're just glad you're joining in with us today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah, the second chapter, and that's where we're going to be most of this morning. I've told this story before, but when I first moved here 18 years ago, I moved here three months before my family did, and so I had a lot of time to kill. And when I'd get off work, I'd stop by the property here. None of this was here, just uh, 75 acres full of uh, cedar trees and a pond. And I'd go down there to the pond, and I'd go fishing. And it was really relaxing at the end of the day, a good day to wind down. I'd catch some fish and throw back what I caught. It was a lot of fun. I, I tried that again a few years later. It's hard to fish when there's no water in the pond. And that pond was built to hold water. And so the rain would come, it would drain from the property into that one spot, and it would fill up. But there came a time when the trees on what we call the dam on the north end of that pond started making holes. The roots made holes in the ground there, and the water would seep out toward that uh, land to the north of that. And so the pond would eventually drain, and we didn't want it to happen. We saw it happening, and it wasn't a good thing. We just couldn't do anything about it. Now, that's what it's going to be like when we talk about this story in the Old Testament. It was not something that they wanted to happen, but it just started to run dry. And you'll know what I mean here in a minute. We could <clears throat> see that happening, though, in that pond. The water just leaks out, and it's not worth what it was supposed to be. We see that a lot today. We see that in our society. We see the spiritual decline in our country, and it just seems like it's worse than it's ever been, and it just keeps getting worse, and there's nothing that we can do about it. That's how we feel. Maybe you see that in your marriage. You were in love. It was going to be forever, and then you started patching one hole after another, and you've done that for years, and the water level just keeps dropping, and you just feel like there's nothing that you can do. Maybe you feel that way with your children. You love your children, and you've invested in your children, and you know you could have done better. I think we all see that as they grow. Could have done better in this area or that area. But you see them making some decisions that they shouldn't make, and they are headed down a wrong path. And <clears throat> you just think, how in the world did this happen? Maybe you see that in your finances. You make these plans for vacations, or you make these plans for retirement, and you watch your savings just dwindle away and, and you just think, how did this happen? I, I have nothing left. And we try to fix it. The water keeps pouring out. Well, that's the image of idolatry that we see here in the Old Testament. And that's what Jeremiah is going to talk to us about in chapter 2. That when we put our hope in something other than God, that hope eventually just starts to leak away. And we watch it happen. And we watch our hope just dry up. Because these idols, these false gods, don't hold water. And so we're going to look at this in Jeremiah 2. But first, what leads up to this? We, we put a halt on the story last week, so it's been two weeks since we've talked about it. So I want to do just a little bit of a recap here. The nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. About 200 years' time went by when God had sent nine prophets to warn the people. And the message he sent them with was, Judgment is coming, and if you don't turn around, if you don't change your direction, you're going to face some pretty severe consequences because you've rejected the one true God and followed some false gods. And so 200 years, God warns the people, judgment is coming, and it's finally here. 
The Assyrian army, 185,000 soldiers, destroys the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom is next. But when the Assyrians come to attack the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom has this secret weapon. His name is Hezekiah. We talked about Hezekiah a couple of weeks ago, and we know Hezekiah to be a man of prayer and purity and humility. And the Bible says that during his reign, God withheld judgment on the nation. Instead of judgment, God brings salvation, all because of Hezekiah, and he rescues his people from the Assyrian army. But after Hezekiah dies, his son Manasseh takes over the throne, and he did not follow in his father's footsteps. And so pretty soon, they bring the idols back again to worship these idols. Manasseh had gone so far from his father's thoughts and his father's faith. He'd been a a pretty evil king. In fact, he, he started worshiping idols, and he went to the extreme of even sacrificing his own son to an idol. So you can see Manasseh is an evil king. And God has had enough of this. And he allows Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army to come in and attack the southern kingdom. And then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians come and take Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Many people were taken captive. A small percentage of people were left behind in Jerusalem, but many people were taken captive or they were scattered. But one of those left behind was Jeremiah, the prophet. Jeremiah's job is to continue to preach God's word to the people, to call people to repentance, but they won't listen. And maybe you know somebody like that. They haven't listened. You've tried to call them into repentance. You've tried to call them and lead them to following God. And so now they're experiencing God's discipline on their life. And they're living through some of the consequences of their own sin. But they still won't listen. They still won't turn back to God. And that's what Jeremiah finds as he preaches. And when he called him, God told him, they're not going to listen to you. I need you to preach, but they're not going to accept what you have to say. And they didn't. They despised Jeremiah for what he said. Now, Jeremiah was different than the preachers of his day. He wasn't a hellfire and brimstone preacher. He didn't yell at people. He didn't put them down. He's what's called a weeping prophet because he just pleads with people with tears in his eyes. Please, turn from those false gods. Turn back to God, please. And he pleads with the people in tears, but they just don't listen. And here's the message God gives Jeremiah, chapter 2, starting with verse 9. God speaks through Jeremiah and says this, Therefore, I bring charges against you again. In other words, we've been through this before. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? And yet they're not even gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So you see what God is doing there. He lumps all of their sins and rebellion into one category, and he puts it under the umbrella of idolatry. He's saying, the problem I have with you are these worthless idols. You have forsaken me, dug your own cisterns. That's idolatry. And the cisterns that you dig don't even hold water. And so Jeremiah is helping us understand that idolatry is the sin that all other sin falls under. And you might say, well, I don't struggle with idolatry at all. I have no idols. I just struggle with lust. But what is lust? It's worshiping sexual pleasure. And so you're choosing to worship sexual pleasure instead of worshiping God. That's idolatry. Or you say, I don't have a problem with idolatry. I do have a problem with materialism. I want more stuff, and I'm jealous of people who have it. Well, where does that come from? 
what comes from putting things and stuff and money on the throne of your heart. It's what you live for. It's what you want more than anything else. And it shows itself through jealousy, materialism, discontentment. But it's really idolatry. Well, I don't have a problem with idolatry. I just worry all the time. But where does that come from? Maybe you've made comfort and security your God. And because you're so concerned with comfort and security in the future, it causes fear and anxiety and worry in your life. But it's really an idol. Jeremiah says here, here's the problem God has with you. It's idolatry. It's worthless gods. And he uses a metaphor to help us understand what he's talking about here. And he talks about cisterns that don't hold water. And that's really what a false god is. It means that you're looking for something other than God to be the source of satisfaction, to quench the thirst that you have from within. Now, sometimes we get confused on what a cistern really is. A well is a source of water that comes up from the ground. A cistern is a hole that's dug in the ground that collects water from above. And cisterns were very common in that day because it wouldn't rain for months at a time. So they're always digging these cisterns and trying to seal these cisterns up. But then there would be this, this hole and the water would leak out and they'd, they'd have to try to fix it all the time. And it was a real pain in the neck for people at that day. And archaeologists have discovered there are thousands of cisterns in that area. So these people were always digging, always repairing, always trying to accumulate water. And God says, that's what it's like. You just keep digging your own cisterns. But, and this is an important one, but there is this spring of living water, fresh, clean water flowing right beside you. And so he's saying to the people, you keep digging these cisterns and you're trying to dig this stagnated water out of the cistern to drink, but right beside you, there's a spring of fresh, clean water and you're missing it, not paying attention to it because of these cisterns. And that's idolatry. That God has provided this, you've rejected it for what you've made yourself. And so instead of receiving what he has for you, you replace it with something that doesn't really give life at all. It might taste good for a little bit, might hydrate you temporarily, but it doesn't satisfy. Here's a good example of what we're talking about. A few years ago, a hotel owner in England decided to remove the Bible from the nightstands in the hotel rooms of his hotel and replace it with another book. And the book he replaced the Bible with was the book Fifty Shades of Grey. And they take the Bible out and replace it with a book that had been called Porn. Now, I know that was 10 years ago. Ten years ago, Fifty Shades of Grey seemed like it was just a terrible book. The things we've dealt with in the last ten years and even today make Fifty Shades of Grey look like a Dr. Seuss book. But it was an evil thing in that day, and it's still evil today. But here's what the owner said. He says, tonight millions of women will be curling up in bed with a good book, and you can bet your life it won't be the Bible. This made me wonder about the sense of providing a book, the Gideon Bible, which no one reads and many dislike, in the bedside cabinet of our hotel rooms, instead of a book which everyone wants to read, such as Fifty Shades of Grey. So you see what they're doing there. They're taking God's truth. They're taking God's life, removing it, and putting in a different source in its place. And that's what idolatry looks like. And we don't always see it for what it is. We don't call it idolatry, but that's what it is. It's when you reject God's living water for your own cisterns. And here's what it looks like. Maybe instead of looking to God for comfort, you look to the cistern of food or maybe for mindless entertainment. Instead of looking to God for meaning, you look to your career or your accomplishments. Instead of looking to God for security, you look to money and investments. 
Instead of looking to God for joy, you look to your children or to your marriage. And instead of looking to God for strength, you, you turn to self-help books or motivational speakers or inspirational quotes you find on the internet. You want to get more current than that? Instead of looking to God for hope, you rely on politics. That's what you put your hope in. Can you imagine what would happen if we talked about God as much as we talk about politics and vaccines and masks and all those things? Instead of looking to God for truth, you turn to popular opinion. And it's not that anything is wrong with a lot of that stuff. In fact, a lot of that stuff God might use as a tool to to help us. But the problem is we're just not looking to them just for help. We're looking to them for hope. And that's where we're putting our hope. And we've replaced God with these things that might even be good things. And we've made the good things God things, and that's idolatry. It just doesn't work. And so God brings this charge against the people that they have rejected his living water, these broken cisterns that they have have gone to to find all of their hope instead of the living water of God. So let's just talk about what it looks like when we're drinking from the cistern, because I don't think we realize it most of the time. Even as we sit right here and talk about this, we probably don't realize what we're doing most of the time, that we've rejected his living water for something of this world. So let's just look at a few things. When you're drinking from the cistern instead of God's living water, you can get worn out from all the digging. Here in Jeremiah, God talks about this and makes a point of saying, you have dug for yourself. Have you ever tried to dig a hole in the ground and you know uh, that it's hard ground, it's just exhausting? Before we lived here, we lived in the Ozarks. If you've ever lived in the Ozarks and tried to plant a tree, it's more rock than it is dirt. And it's exhausting to do that. Even here in Derby, where the ground is not like that, it may be clay, but it's a lot easier to dig through than rock. I remember we dug a hole in our backyard and planted a tree there, and the tree died. And so I took that tree out, put another tree in the same hole, because I didn't want to go dig another hole, because that's exhausting to do, and that tree died as well. Now, I don't know what it is about me. I mean, I could have dug a hole in a different place, but I didn't want to. It was just exhausting to dig a hole, and that's how the people lived with these cisterns. They were exhausted from digging these holes in the ground. And when we're doing that, instead of finding our satisfaction in God, we're trying to do it ourselves. It's an exhausting way to live. In fact, Solomon describes it like this in Ecclesiastes, that it's what it's like when we're trying to find satisfaction in the world instead of God. He said it's like chasing after the wind. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, if you ever caught it. That would be amazing, but you can't catch it. It, The wind's just going to keep on blowing. And he says it's, it's mindless like that. He, he says that's what it's like, trying to find life outside of God, trying to find it in your career or in relationships or money or success. It's like chasing after the wind. You're not going to find what you want. You're not going to get the conclusion that you want, and it's just exhausting. Years ago, there was an online company that published an internet search history of 650,000 of its users. Now, they didn't give the person's name. They just gave a number for the person. But they would show what the person was searching for. And it may be Ford trucks or K-State football scores or home improvement uh, deals or whatever. could have been all kinds of things. But they revealed the search history of that person. And they thought it would be pretty anonymous since they didn't use the name. But the New York Times revealed that they could take that search history and find the person just by using that search history. They could locate the person's address, what school their kids went to, what kind of car they drove, and even their name based on what they had searched for. 
And our searches have a way of revealing who we are. You show me what you're searching for, I'll tell you about your identity. And so you look at the cisterns that you've been digging and you look at what you've been chasing after and it just shows what you're looking to in life instead of finding life in God. And it's an exhausting way to live. Here's another indication that we're drinking from the cisterns instead of God's spring of living water. There's this bitter aftertaste. Now, the water in the cisterns would become stagnant. And so sometimes it was so low, you'd have to scoop the water off of the bottom. And it had a terrible aftertaste. It was not a fresh taste at all. It was a bitter taste in your mouth. Jeremiah talks about this in Jeremiah 2, verse 19. He says, God says, your wickedness will bring its own punishment. Your wickedness brings its own conclusion. Outside of God's active wrath, there's this passive wrath of God that just tags along whenever we decide to do things not God's way, and it just follows after us. Your wickedness will bring its own punishment. Your turning from me will shame you, God says. And you will see what an evil, bitter thing it is to abandon the Lord your God and not fear him. I, the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. So when we turn to something or someone other than God to satisfy us, there's this bitter aftertaste that you just have to live with because you've rejected what he has for you and you've chosen something else. And so God the Father says, it's a horrifying thing to watch. He tells his angels in heaven, look down and shudder at the sight of this. I provided this water for these children of mine and they have rejected it. Instead, they're drinking from these cisterns. Imagine it this way. Imagine you have a special occasion for your child and you take your child to the best steakhouse in town and they've never been there before. They've never had a steak like that. And you order the best steak that they have on the menu and you're excited about it because you love them and you you know they're going to love this steak. And so the steak comes out and it is sizzling. And the plate is put right in front of your child and the child reaches into their coat pocket and they pull out a piece of beef jerky. It's got pocket fuzz on it. It's got lint on it. They just wipe it off and bite into that. But there's this steak and it's right in front of them, but they chomp on this beef jerky instead. And as a parent, how would you feel? Honestly, you'd be pretty annoyed You'd be frustrated because you just spent a lot of money on that steak. You bought the best steak that you could. You wanted to provide this for your child, and now they have rejected it. But you'd also be sad because you wanted the best for them, and, and they don't want it. They just chew on the jerky. And that's the image of what we do with our life. God provides all this for us. Through Christ, he provides peace and joy, strength and purpose, and it's all right in front of us. And we say, no, I've got my beef jerky. I'm good. And God says, it's just a hard thing to watch as a father. In fact, it's horrifying. And some of you understand this because you've watched your own children find water from the cisterns of this world, and they've rejected what God has for them. And you know it breaks your heart. Think of Manasseh, Hezekiah's son. He grew up in a home where his dad loved the Lord, and he did his best to pass that on to, to Manasseh, but Manasseh rejected it. And so Proverbs 25 starts off like this. These are more Proverbs of Solomon copied by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So Manasseh's dad, the king, went back to the archives and he found the Proverbs of Solomon and he put them together. I just imagine he put them together in a little notebook that has wisdom of Solomon written on the outside. And in part, I'm sure he did this so he could pass this along to his son but his son doesn't want to have anything to do with that. He doesn't want the steak, and he rejects it. 
And it's scary. It's scary when you see the number of young people, the next generation, drinking from other sources instead of their own sister, instead insisting on their own cisterns. The American Religious Identification Survey found that those who claim no faith, the number has almost doubled every few years. In 1990, it was 8% of people claim no faith at all. In 2012, it was 15%. In 2018, it was 23%. And I don't have the current statistics, but I'm sure they're above 23%. The largest demographic of the group who claim no faith are the ages 18 to 29. 73% of those who claim no faith grew up in religious homes. 66% are described as deconverts. And George Barna estimates that 80% of those raised in the church will disengage from their faith by the time they're 29 years old. And that is heartbreaking to watch. We just continue to watch that. Because you know what God has. I mean, it's right there, but they just keep digging, hoping that these cisterns of the world will satisfy. I want you to listen to this letter. It was written by a mom. It's called A Mother's Letter to a Prodigal Son. And I think it captures how God feels as he speaks to the prophet Jeremiah. His people have scattered. They're not at home. And so through tears, Jeremiah cries out to the prodigal children of God. And I think this letter helps us understand where God is coming from. My dear prodigal, I remember a boy who was eager to call me mama and who gave spontaneous hugs and kisses. You loved to eat any and all of my food and made me feel like the best cook in the world. I remember your stubbornness and hope you would use it to change the world but instead you used it to change mine and so many others who love you. And our hearts ache because we miss you, the real you, the one who is strong for the weak and makes everyone feel safe. I can't help but wonder if I am somehow to blame for the change of direction you have made as of late. Was I not strict enough? Did I show you the love and grace that is Jesus? Was I a hypocrite? Then I start to figure out what I would do differently if I had the chance? Would I affirm you more, correct you less? Would I discipline and guide you more gently? I realize I'm trying to rewrite the past, something that can never be done, no matter how hard I try. And I remember that I am to forget those things which are behind. Next, I start to worry about the now and where you are and what you are doing. I stare at the glow of the digital alarm clock at my room and wonder, who you're with at 1.30 a.m. and why you aren't answering your phone and texts. But here the comforter draws me near and whispers that I am to be anxious for nothing. You see, dear heart, you don't belong to me and you never have. Your mama and father gave you back to God. He has a plan for your future and he finishes what he has started. And so with this letter that I write to you that you may never see, I pray that you know one very important thing. I pray that you know that my arms are wide open and ready for your return. Anytime you are ready, no matter what you've done, we'll face it together. Because his arms are ready too, you know, he awaits your return. He will be dancing and spinning and celebrating with the best of them. He misses you even more than I do. He paid a great price to know you and every day you're away seems like an eternity. So make haste, my son. We're waiting. Daddy, Jesus, and I, we're fattening the calf and preparing the party. We're standing in the yard, shielding our eyes from the sun, hoping to catch a glimpse of you coming over the horizon. The day cannot come soon enough. Arms always open. 
Mama. Tears, Jeremiah expresses the heart of God to his sons and daughters. He says, just come home. I mean, turn back, just repent of these things. Have nothing to do with those cisterns. Find what you're looking for in me. And as we've read through the story, we've seen it over and over again, people turning back to their idols, turning away from their God, turning back to their cisterns. And finally, Jesus comes on the scene. Here's how he introduces himself. He introduces himself as the living water. He is the living water. He is the well. He's the source. He's the spring. And he introduces himself that way in John 4 to a woman who had been married four times and now she's living with a man who's not her husband. She's dug six of these cisterns, each time hoping to find satisfaction, each time hoping to find a quenching of her thirst in the arms of a man. And each time she's disappointed. Each time she sprung a leak and water leaked out and she just starts digging another one. Until one day when she's at the well and she meets Jesus. And Jesus says to her in John 4, 13, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the living water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. He says, I am the living water. I'm what you're looking for. I'm right here, and my arms are open wide. And that's another thing about drinking from the cisterns. Your thirst never seems to be truly quenched. I know people who are very similar to the woman at the well, and people who have put emphasis on the things of this world for purpose and meaning, and their stories are tough. Their stories are sad to hear. Divorce, bankruptcy, broken relationships, alcohol, disappointment, and the water's just drained out. Dying of thirst with nowhere else to turn. But in that moment, they turn to Jesus, and their thirst is quenched, and they say, I didn't realize Jesus was all I really wanted until Jesus was all I really had. May that be true for us today, that we would see that these cisterns that we've been digging, they just don't work. And may we turn to Jesus, the living water. That's the cry of Jeremiah. That's the cry of Jesus Christ. He says, listen, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. Come back. Find your fulfillment in me. And maybe today as we offer this time of invitation, it's the invitation for you personally. You hear every week, we have an invitation. But it's personal for you because you know. You've heard the cry of Jeremiah. You've heard the cry of God. You know you need to turn back. And so if you're ready to do that today, we have people at both of these decision point rooms who would love to help lead you in that today. Let's stand together and sing.